Welcome to the Limitless Energy Podcast. We are back home in Reno, Nevada. Uh, so I am taking this opportunity to find another local uh, CEO. So I'd like to welcome the chairman and CEO of Comstock Inc., Mr. Corrado de Gasparis. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for coming on the program. We actually have a lot to talk about um, because you guys do so much at Comstock. But I want to start off by talking about Comstock because th this is the actual historical mining company from the 1800s, correct? That, that is correct. We, we consolidated about 12 square miles of mineral properties. It represents substantially all of the historic Comstock load. It doesn't include, we don't, we don't own Virginia City, just to be clear, <laughs> but pretty much everything just to the south of it and for six miles of contiguous mineral trend, gold and silver trend. And we uh, entitled all the properties, we built out the infrastructure, and we were in production for five years. Currently, we're exploring and developing and using new technologies to expand the gold and silver resources, but it's only one of our four lines of business. So the mine there is, is focused on gold and silver. Gold and silver was the largest silver discovery in the country at the time. It's why Nevada's nicknamed the Silver State. <laughs> Which was at the time was like 1850? 1859 okay. to about 1880 was the height of the load. But there's been mining on the district pretty much every decade except for when the War Act shut it down in 1945. So what a quintessentially Nevada company you are. Um, and similar to Nevada, have become very tech savvy and is and diversified yeah so let, let's talk about the diversification in recent years yeah so first i would just uh, correlate that also back it is very nevada home is nevada for us we're headquartered here all of our companies are um, established and domiciled but uh, the comstock was also like a global leader in innovating new technologies and enabling really? mining yeah underground mining concepts were established by um um Dadesheim, he created this block set modeling that allowed them to mine 700 miles of underground tunnels with picks and shovels and jackhammers, okay? So that was invented on the Comstock. People would be shocked to hear that um, Professor Jackson from the University of Nevada, Reno, um, perfected cyanide leaching and created the entire open pit mining industry right from the Comstock load at the Donovan Mill in Silver City. So there's, um, and there's dozens and dozens of innovations that went global in the mining industry from the Comstock load. So we, we actually feel not only is Nevada currently diversifying with high tech and clean tech, but it's also fundamentally, foundationally part of our legacy. That is interesting. So these techniques that were developed, are they still in use? Or they, are, they, yeah. still, they are. So they are still like, so the, um, the cyanide process is the world standard for leaching oxide ores today. Um, Merrill Crow presses were being used, and that's one of the standards in the industry today for precipitation and processing of the metals. Um, and there's dozens more. So um, certainly some have been superseded, but I would not call the mining industry a pioneer in new tech. So a lot of them are still in, in, in place. <laughs> well, uh, the relation to the the coming lithium boom, there there you know there there's quite a bit of new tech pioneering associated with lithium mining, correct? Absolutely. Not only the discoveries there too, the processing techniques thereof, and right now we're working on a, a breakthrough on extraction. So you know all of these things will make it cleaner, 
more efficient, more economically feasible. So can we talk about extraction a little bit? Yeah. How, how is this different than, you said an in innovation and extraction, how is this different than basically uh, getting it out of the ground and purifying it into lithium carbonate? Is this something different? Yeah, well, so in, in, there's complexity in the lithium industry because there's different forms of lithium, right? You can, you can be literally trying to process from hard rock or you could be extracting from the brine, you mm -hmm. know, and the fluids. So um, maybe the right segue to that question is what we think of a core, a core competency in Comstock, be it fuels, recycling and or mining is extraction processes, right? So we have expertise in high temperature, high pressure, call it supercritical processes for extraction of these materials or elements from the materials that we are able to extrapolate. So our core competency in taking woody biomass to fuels is the supercritical digestion process, how we get the carbon, how we get the materials out of the wood efficiently, effectively. And we're applying those similar techniques to other extractions of lithium carbonate from black mass, of um, lithium from this, you know, the species or the, you know, the originating ore body. You kind of jumped ahead there to extraction of, uh, of fuels from wood, which, yeah. you know, that's, I did want to talk to you about that. So yeah. let's, but I wanted to get there by going through the issue that sure. came up uh, recently uh, in, in a panel that both of us were on. Mm. Uh, and you made a relatively controversial comment when the, the idea of having uh, a large fraction of the American fleet uh, being electric vehicles uh, by 2030. Yeah. And what, what did you say exactly? It's not possible. <laughs> it's not possible. <laughs> it, was, it was more I, prolific than I that. I might have said impossible. <laughs> Impossible. You no. said it's absolutely not possible. Not so possible. this is coming from somebody who's actually uh, getting lithium from the ground. Yeah. So yeah. So so I, I guess my view on this is we absolutely believe there's a global dilemma. We we don't spend one minute of time in our company debating the climate issue, right? The science is clear to us, right? The more carbon that is being emitted into the atmosphere the more it impacts the climate with meaningful negative implications. So our, the mission of our company now is to enable systemic decarbonization. And so, um, you know, everything that we do, everything we think about is to that purpose. So we would call ourselves a, a purposeful, a purpose-driven company, enable systemic decarbonization. And so um, when we think about electrification, we absolutely see EVs, electric vehicles, as part of the solution, not, um, not a mature part of the solution, an incredibly immature part of the solution with two implications on that that are salient. One is the current supply chain isn't decarbonizing. It is not a net reducer of carbon. We can all agree that driving a car that has no emission coming out of the, the tailpipe is an appeasing idea. It, it, it makes us feel like we're not, you know, we're, we're not adding carbon. Well, to it's the, good for to urban air pollution anyway. It's, it certainly is implicating to urban concentrations. Get you know where where it's too concentrated or overwhelming, you know, it's it's a it's an incredible solution, and it also. Um, you know, eliminate some of the range issues that we currently have at this level of maturity. But it's not, 
And so that's the way we should be thinking about it, right? Urban, uh, you know, urban concentrations, higher smog or, or emitting areas, it, it's a relief. However, however, if you're charging the car with fossil fuel-based energy, if the supply chain to manufacture the car, if the supply chain, right, to rip the cobalt, rip the nickel, uh, inefficiently extract the lithium from the ground is a net contributor of the carbon problem, it doesn't solve the global problem. You can have some regional relief to, the, to, to a goal that will never be achieved. This is, there's where my context is. It, it's impossible. Now, because it's appeasing, because there's no emissions coming out of the tailpipe, right, our, our leaders jump to everything must be electrified. If we electrified everything today, right, it would be a net polluter, first problem. Second problem, there's nowhere near the materials required to achieve that goal. Nowhere near. Not in any time frame that's relevant. Forget 2050. <laughs> so, so we think that electrification, as it matures, as renewable energy is used, as um, it's deployed in, in, in regions and segments where it has a maximum human impact, it's a part of the solution. Even in that context, it's, it's, it's a minority of the solution. People, most people are surprised when I say that uh, Los Angeles County has more population than 39 of the 50 states. So, right, we don't have the density issues in Wyoming. We don't have the density issues, frankly, in most of Nevada except for Vegas and maybe a little bit Reno. So, so it's a part of the solution. Um, it, 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 it contributes to the solution. If it matures and it evolves, I mean, Elon Musk says it too, that you know, we need to have more renewable energy in the supply chain. We need to do things to improve it. So we're even, even a Tesla is only part of the solution, right? So. Well, one of the other problems, of course, if a lot of the transportation fleet is electrified is, as you noted, all, all of that energy is going to come from the grid. It's going to come from all of it. It's, so it's substantially all of it. So that puts extra stressors on the grid that are already starting to, to become evident. And not only stressing a cracking grid, but it, it does not achieve the objective. Right. <laughs> if you're trying to systemically decarbonize, you are not decarbonizing any part but of the system. It does achieve the objectives if the majority of the grid becomes yeah, renewable. That's what I'm saying. So, Maturity is critical. Evolution right. of the solution is critical. So thank you. I mean, we appreciate that plug, yeah, you know, at yeah, Dragonfly, because yeah. that's kind of what we've been touting is uh, at least um, some of that lithium that comes out of the ground uh, has to contribute to the to the storage issue that we have on the grid so that we can have more solar and wind. Right. But I want to come back to the to the issue of transportation. And so much lithium battery research has been focused on replacing the way that gasoline engines behave. And by that, I mean, you want to be able to drive a very long way on a, on a charge, like a tank of gasoline, but also you want to be able to charge it very, very quickly. And of course, we're, we maintain that uh, those are completely different metrics than what's required for storage on the grid. But what I like about what you are proposing at Comstock is the alternative of, well, let's not necessarily replace 
the internal combustion engine, let's make the fuel net neutral. So let's talk about that. How, how do you go about uh, making fuel from the carbon dioxide that we put in the air? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's really where we believe Comstock will have the most substantial impact so far in terms of our technologies that we're commercializing in systemic decarbonization. So let me tell you why that is. The When you look at mobility, when you look at um, all of the transportation burn, if you want to think of it that way, the fuels that we're burning, right, it makes up a substantial majority of the emissions that are that we're trying to reduce. The United States alone makes up 25% of that number. And road burn, like highway and road transportation, is 75% of that number. So you're talking about if decarbonizing is your mission, we're going after one of the big kahunas. We're going after the major number, which is transportation. Globally, globally, we have 1.5 billion vehicles deployed. And if you get to 10% electrification, which is pretty massive, that's only 150 million vehicles. So you still have like, you know, 1.35 billion vehicles that and an infrastructure all around all tuned it, to the, all to gas. set in place to burn these liquid fuels. Yeah. So, so when you think about what's the cost of replacement, it's 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 unachievable. It's not it's not trillions is not the right discussion, right? It's 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 just it's not a feasible concept to replace an existing infrastructure that's pervasive. In, 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 in its in its utility and in its in its you know scope so the solution is to replace the 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 offending emitter right the fossil fuel with a carbon neutral solution so that because of that it has been considered kind of a, a holy grail right to to be able to produce uh liquid fuels from vegetation that obviously get its carbon from the air. Yeah. Um, so why is Comstock on the forefront? What, what's the uh, yeah. advance there that's been lacking globally for, yeah. for so long? So, so um, the reason for it is that our chief scientist, our uh, chief uh, executive uh, for our fuels business, the two of them and others, have spent um, nearly two decades working on um, extraction technologies. Their, their first breakthrough actually was being able to extract a corn oil from the, um, the biomass, the waste biomass from the corn ethanol process. So, so, so they invented a process for extracting coin, corn oil from waste biomass that now has been adopted by 95% of the corn ethanol industry and uh, certainly in the low points of their cycles was the only reason that industry was still profitable. So what do you mean by waste biomass? This so, is the so corn after the ethanol has been extracted. After they've extracted the ethanol. So what's left the is remaining, the cellulose. Yes, the remaining agricultural cellulose um, biomass. It's waste. Mm -hmm. It's waste. And they extracted a multi-billion dollar revenue stream from waste that was being that they that the industry was paying to throw away, so, so that they've done that. 
Now they advance that technology into extracting ethanol. Similarly, they were in that industry, they were in that space, extracting ethanol from the cellulose in wood. They uh, patented the process, they uh, perfected the process, and we took an interest. The reason we took an interest is we were saying, what are the major problems in the market and, and could we find a solution to address those? Talking about decarbonization. So we said, this is a solution that works. What could we do? We could take wood, waste wood, sawdust, mill scraps. The, the federal government um, puts out a report called the Billion Ton Report, and it shows that there's 100 million tons a year generated just in the United States, just from these mills, in sawdust and waste wood from the lumber industry. A hundred million tons. And is that just landfilled now? It's it's um it's either landfilled, left in dumps, you know, alongside the mills, or sometimes there's very low productive uses, like bedding for animals, mm -hmm. things like that. So so um, they were able to extract the, this you know cellulosic sugar from the cellulose, and then ferment and catalyst that material into molecularly identical ethanol. So when, cellulosic when did that ethanol. Happen? So I think our team was able to do that eight, nine years ago, 10 years ago. And that was at Comstock or before? No, 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 before. Okay. So we acquired the company in After, 2021. Okay. Got it. Two years ago, two and a half years ago now. Mm -hmm. So what we were interested in, what we, what we were taken by is that this unutilized waste wood that was abundant, right, could be available to start producing decarbonizing fuels. Now... The um, so we were in, in, we were we were they, we were attracted by that. It was technically proven, TRL level, you know, six seven. We were ready to go, and it was economically feasible. And the economics were make ethanol, cellulosic ethanol, which is molecularly identical to corn ethanol, and then take the byproduct. Remember again, now we've got only half of the wood is cellulose. So you take a ton of wood, you're only effectively using half a ton. The other half is lignin rich, hard nut to crack, and you use it in a boiler to just generate energy. You burn it for energy. And why is that positive? That's positive because the carbon impact score uh, is better if you do that than if you're using, for example, natural gas to fuel it or a mm -hmm. petroleum, you know, a, a fossil fuel generator. Um, so, so we like that a lot. And they were able to produce 70 gallons of ethanol from half of the wood. Now, ethanol, understand, is blended. It's a blend. It's not a drop-in fuel. So, so even though ethanol has a has a positive carbon impact, it, you know, it's only ten percent of the real impact because you're gonna you're gonna blend ten percent of the ethanol with normal petroleum gas. So, there's a very big mitigating effect on ethanol. So what, what was promising to us is that they were looking in expanding to maybe convert ethanol to a drop-in fuel, like sustainable aviation fuel or um, diesel or even gasoline. But that wasn't perfected yet. We were looking at that on that side of the equation. What's happened since then is a monstrous breakthrough for us because what, what, when you look at this ton of wood, and you say, well, cellulose is what's called um, hydrophilic. It, it loves water. 
it absorbs water. You can imagine like your Scott paper towel <laughs> is made from cellulose, you know, and, um, and it's, it, it, it's a water absorber. Lignin is hydrophobic, which means it hates water. <laughs> it's afraid of water. It's, it's literally oil and water, right? So the industry, um, like um, for me with hindsight, it, it seems um, difficult to explain why. The industry struggled and struggled many, many frustrated attempts on trying to utilize the entirety of the wood. But with hindsight, what we see is that they were treating that ton of wood the same. They were trying to treat it, come up with treatments, if you will, that were the same for that ton of wood. Our president, David Winsdis, saw a solution in plain sight, which was fractionalize the wood, treat this half extraction one way, treat this half extraction the other way. And then we had a breakthrough where we were able to essentially liquefy the lignin and um, we call it melt soluble. And we use, we use a solvent that liquefies the lignin and, and creates a, a material that is nearly the um, carbon neutral equivalent to petroleum. So we branded it bioleum. But now what's happened is instead of getting a 50% effective yield from the ton of wood, we can get 100% effective yield. And let me use real numbers. The technology we're deploying now, instead of getting, example, 70 gallons of ethanol, right, from that half a ton, which we think of as seven gallons of impact because it has to be blended, right? We can now get 50 gallons of drop-in fuel from the cellulose stream, 50 gallons, and 45 to 50 gallons from the lignin stream. So now we're talking about delivering 95 to 100 gallons of drop-in fuel, gasoline, diesel, sustainable aviation from one ton of wood. Because it was economic on just the, the ethanol portion with using the other half as a, as a fuel source to burn power, we now have a breakthrough that is powerfully economic. But, but it's not just the economics. The problem in the industry is that there are, there's about just under 20 renewable refineries in the United States today. Big companies like Marathon, Petrol, you know, these companies are, are all working on renewable solutions. They all have their own carbon targets. Um, they're serious. We see big oil as serious. We see everyone, you know, from Exxon to Chevron to Marathon. All these companies are publicly saying, right, they have carbon targets and they're working with renewable fuels. And we know they are, right? Um, there's less than 20 up and running in the United States. And they use today as feedstock two and a half billion gallons of vegetable oils. We call them fats, oils, and greases, fogs, um, per annum to produce these renewable fuels. There's barely enough of these oils to service these facilities. Now, shockingly, there's 40 under construction today as we speak that will require another five to seven billion billion gallons of vegetable oils. Now to your point, right? Not only are you competing uh, with agricultural um, uses, you're competing with the food chain, right? So you, you, you don't have a positive situation brewing here. You have a bottleneck in the renewable fuel industry that does not have a solution to it. And so we, we are the solution 
to that constraint. We have an abundance of feedstock, which I'd like to talk to about a little bit more. How, why is this decarbonizing, right? How does this work? We have an abundance of feedstock, 100 million tons, 100 million tons for us, you know, would create, you know, you know, you're talking about, uh, there's 150 billion gallons burned in the United States every year. So that's the, the market, 150 billion gallons. One million tons, we can produce 100 million gallons. One million ton a year facility can produce 100 million gallons. So you can see with just waste wood over the next five, six, seven years, we make a big dent in the market. But there's over a billion tons of waste wood generated a year. The 100 million is, the, is what the government and the renewable fuel standard says qualifies for their incentives. But there's almost another billion tons, meaning we can solve the problem, right, with this feedstock. We can fully supply with this feedstock. And then you start to scratch your head and say, Canada has twice as much wood as the United States, <laughs> and it becomes exciting, right? It becomes exciting. Well, there you have it. I guess so, yeah. we got the problem solved. <laughs> well, we have the solution. <laughs> to now solve the problem, we must build those supply chains, right? We must um, secure those wood sources. We must build the bio-intermediate facilities. We, what we would love to do is produce the cellulosic sugar and the bioleum, right? And then feed these renewable refineries, the feedstock that allows them to produce hydro tree and produce the drop in fuels. We could do both, but, but our view is to be more systemic, to more integrate into the existing infrastructure and really focus on the part of the system that's broken, that, that is constrained, that is blocked. So, but, but, but can we talk about the wood a little bit more? Go for it. Because, because people say to me, I don't understand how you're decarbonizing. I see the Tesla drive by, I see no emissions coming out of the, the fuel, the, 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 the exhaust. So I can see how they're not contributing to the problem. But your car is still burning gas, right, Corrado? Your plane is still burning aviation fuel, right? Your truck is still burning diesel. That is correct. But here's the difference. When you think of carbon sources, you should we, we break it into two categories, right? We call long cycle carbon right? That carbon that is buried deep in the earth from 100 million or billion, whatever many years it, it took to become oil. Um, short cycle carbon is, is, is on the surface already. It's already decomposing. It's already, no matter what we do, is going to contribute to the carbon in the atmosphere. So we say if we're taking short cycle carbon off of, of you know, sawdust that's just sitting there decomposing, then we're not adding to the emission. In that context, it's carbon neutral. It's way better than that. Because what we ultimately want to do is incent, right? Incent the growing of many, many, many more trees. People, when people first hear what we're, we're contemplating, they think, oh, you're deforesting. We don't, we're afraid. You're going to cut down trees. It's the exact opposite. We have an afforestation strategy. So think about what is a tree? A tree is a carbon sink. If you grow a tree, let's say uh, a hybrid poplar, which can grow in seven years, that's seven years of decarbonizing. It's just sucking carbon dioxide out of the air and doing what? Putting it into the roots, into the ground. 
So ultimately, we would like to start with the waste wood, which is short cycle and is carbon neutral, and then incent the growing of hybrid poplar, willow, bamboo, these fast rotation crops that while they're growing, they create a carbon negative situation. So you're starting to hear very important companies not say that their vision is a net carbon zero world. They're saying we need to go beyond zero because there's a recognition that zero, the time it will take to get to zero is too late, right, to solve the climate problems that we have. So we have to get negative and we have to accelerate the impact. So by, by growing these trees, you start decarbonizing naturally, right? And then you can rotate. If you have a seven-year crop, every year you take out one-seventh. And you've effectively added that decarbonizing system into the equation, and then you're burning carbon-neutral fuels on top of it. Now, I just want to use an example. When, when corn ethanol took off, they built 200 plants in seven years. 200 plants in seven years. The industry is running at capacity. It achieved exactly what it wanted to achieve, and it ascended a tremendous amount of corn farming. About a third of our corn that we farm is used for fuel, two-thirds for, for food. A third is used for fuel. That was incented by the industry. We can do the exact same thing. And because when Columbus, when Columbus arrived to America, there was a billion acres of forest. Today, there's 630 million. So we deforested over 350 million acres unproductively. We put 100 million of those back, the problem is solved. We don't need to do that to solve the problem because Canada has a lot of wood. South America has a lot of wood. You know, it's kind of fascinating when you think about it strategically. You know, when you think about energy policy in the Middle East and, you know, what they have in oil, think about which countries have wood. It's North America, South America, <laughs> a little bit of Europe. Okay, it's, there's a shift there that's coming strategically. But, you know, I'm getting a little more idealistic here now, but, but that's the ideal. Well, that's very exciting. We've got net negative, net negative. carbon net negative. And, and And to our earlier point, it should, it should coexist with electrification. Electrification is an important part of the solution, mm. you know, as it matures. Well, let me wrap up here by asking one last question. Uh, when can we expect this to happen? Do we have so some good news coming out this year? We have good news, yeah. We just announced um, about... Well, we announced about two months ago that we won a DOE grant, um, but it but it's not for this solution. It's for an enhanced pathway beyond this solution. But what was exciting about that is we we had almost almost all the major players, at least one representative from each part of the supply chain, sign up for this effort. So that that's exciting, and we're working with UNR. Right, UNR will be where we do the pre-pilot for this new pathway, which is an enhancer. Um, but we also announced at that same time that we expect our first commercialization this year. So we're talking about announcing the first project this year. We've got a handful under discussion, and we expect, um, I mean, I hope it's more than one, but for sure it'll be this year that you hear about the first one, and then next year uh, hopefully many more. Wow. Well, we'll be watching. Thank you, Dennis. It's a pleasure <laughs> to talk about this with you. Corrado de Gasparis, thank you so much thank for coming you. on the podcast. Fantastic. 
Thank you for joining the Limitless Energy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on any of your favorite podcast platforms.